Today is Wednesday, January 14th, 2015. Man, it's like we're living in the future. And uh, this is episode 101 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. Good evening. And it's really my fault that we're two days late, so I'm sorry. It's quite all right. We will rectify that going forward. New jobs and all that keep me crazy busy. Yep. So, um, before we jump into stories, just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and not those of our employers. Past, present, or future. It's true. So, uh, first story we have tonight comes from the Wall Street Journal. And the title is, Puzzle Forms in Morgan Stanley Data Breach. We talked a little bit about this one last week, but since then, some additional information has come to the surface, first of which is that we now have a name for this insider. Apparently, it's Galen Marsh. And allegedly, Galen Marsh stole 350,000 of Morgan Stanley's records, uh, customer records, I should say. Uh, However, interestingly... He admits to stealing, or I, sh- I use the word stealing in quotes, right? He admits to uh, copying them. However, he does not uh, admit, he denies that he posted them online or offered them for sale as, uh, as this thing initially uh, came out. So it's kind of uh, an interesting uh, an interesting turn of events, particularly that this article here points out that he doesn't really have a whole lot of apparent motivation. You know, he, he, uh, has been rising through the ranks. There's no, uh, no indication of performance problems. So it's not like he was about to be, uh, apparently let go. So kind of an interesting case, but, uh, another interesting point is that apparently, uh, Morgan Stanley is taking some relatively drastic measures to clamp down on, uh, the amount of data people have access to, which uh, which I think is a is, is probably a good thing. I know last week we didn't offer a lot of uh, advice, but I was thinking about that over the week, and some some things that I've seen done and I have done in the past is really to take a look at your business process when you have a data repository like this that has sensitive things. And look for opportunities to you know, to basically implement some kind of an interlock so that people only have access to records they should have access to. I think, given what I'm reading here, it sounds like that's what they're uh, what they're doing. And and uh, the other interesting thing was they found this person uh, by looking at a uh, I guess a, a report of who had accessed. The uh, the couple, I think it was about a thousand records, if, if memory serves, that were posted to Pastebin. They looked to see who had accessed uh, those records, and apparently this was the only person who had done that. So they clearly had the technology 
to do that. And it makes me wonder, you know, why, why would someone accessing 300,000 records not trip a, trip a, a proactive alarm? Yeah, that is a good question. And one thing I find interesting as well is that a couple things here. So let's say for a moment, just for the sake of discussion, Galen is innocent. I think it's very often the case that employees grab data to work on at home or to do something else with it or to do something that is within their job duty but is outside the normal mechanism of the way that that data was meant to be accessed. So let's say for – we don't know exactly what he did. We don't know why. But let's say for a reason he thought that he had a a reason to grab those 350,000 accounts or records of, of, of information to do something. And for whatever reason, wanted to work on it at home and threw it out on Dropbox and then grabbed it on his home box. Who says the bad guys weren't somehow watching or already on his home box as a matter of course, saw this really interesting data, grabbed it, and started selling it? That is exactly the thought that crossed my mind. So, so just to continue the story a little bit, apparently... Morgan Stanley's security, uh, you know, obviously they confronted him and he admitted to it. And, and in fact, he uh, he went home with their security people and turned over some of his personal devices, which... I thought that very odd. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will tell you a story about Bob sometime. All right. <laughs> uh, it's not as unheard of as one might think. But but any in any event... Uh, this this Galen uh, uh, submitted a personal, apparently a personal computer and, and a personal device. It's not clear to me if it was a USB device or what that had allegedly copies of the customer data. And I think, I, if I had to guess, and he didn't, if he wasn't the one, the originator, I would suspect that what you just described is in fact the case. Um, the other, you know, the other thing that that. Where, where my head went was, you know, blackmail or, uh, you know, some some other uh, some other means by which someone else had cajoled him into copying the data. So uh, that's possible, but you think he would? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't really know. The other interesting thing was they pointed out that, um, at least in the, for the purposes of this article they were kind of scratching their heads as to how this person actually copied the data because apparently morgan stanley's uh is relatively locked down and apparently doesn't allow usb devices and things like that uh so there there's not a lot of detail on how he copied it i would expect that you know they don't allow access to dropbox so he may you know he may have gotten a little clever and i do wonder about things like bluetooth file sharing to your iPhone and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, that's one of the, one of the problems that, and I've struggled this with this a little bit in my own career. How do you, you know, how do you stop the bleeding? Because there's just so many venues or avenues that, that data can leak off of a person's computer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting, too, that they were able to go back and look at the records of who accessed the data when they knew what to look for. Yes. So it makes you wonder, okay, 
is there an opportunity there then to build a proactive learning system when certain thresholds are crossed in terms of how much data is accessed? And this seems to be the case a lot that we can go back and find that signal in the noise, to quote the book that you made me read, uh, when we know what we're looking for, but we're not so great at spotting it as it's happening. And that's something I think we can get better at. I, I suspect so. And, and I, I, I got to believe... Now, granted, I don't know the first thing about their business process, but I will bet you that it's not very common for people to access more than a couple of records at it, you know, at a time. Um, and, or maybe it's it's uh, if there are people, it's relatively specific job roles or or what have you. But um, it just seems odd to me that they had the capability to go and do that analysis and they weren't already looking at it. But you know. I don't know. There may be more nuance that we're not aware of. Indeed. All right. So moving on to our next story, and this one comes from The Economist, and it is called Losing the Plot. It, uh, it, it's a bit of an obtuse, short, relatively short uh, story. And I think it, at the time it was written, it was, uh, yeah, January 3rd. It w- was, uh, I guess, a little prescient in that it forecasted, I think, what ended up happening or is going to happen in in the U.S. with some proposed legislation around uh, information sharing and requirements around uh, reporting breaches and things like that. But, you know, essentially the, the point of this article is that we hear about the exceptions. We hear about the Home Depots, the Targets, the J.P. Morgans, the Morgan Stanleys, because for whatever reason, they can't, con- you know, those companies can't contain the release of that data. It's public. Brian Krebs has already written about it. It's out there, and uh, they've got to deal with it. But the the point of this article is that there, for every one of those, there's an untold number that we don't hear about. And because of that, we don't, you know, the, in general, the industry doesn't have the opportunity to learn from you know, all of those breaches. And so the proposition here is that, boy, we should be making companies, organizations who are breached, do some kind of mandatory reporting, I guess, to some kind of government entity. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm of two minds on that. Because on the one hand, I see a lot of utility in having that kind of information available. In, in many different venues, you know. But on the other hand, I think um, I think there's a lot of downside uh, to to requiring that, you know. And they pointed out too, you know, it it will probably it would probably lead to knee jerk reactions by you know government regulators and things like that. So, I, you know, it's a, it's an interesting debate and i think it's really going to start coming to a head given what uh, the president of the us is about to propose yeah this is a tough one for me i i kind of am going back and forth on this but in essence this concept keeps coming up over and over again. We just need more information. We need to share more information. We need to talk more. If we could just learn from others. Over and over this has come up. I'm going to be cynical for a moment and say, you know, I see so many companies that have had the lessons available to them for years and years that they still don't get right. Basic IT security hygiene. 
failed over and over again. Right? So they're not even getting the basics down. But let's go forward past that and say, all right, we do think this is valuable. We keep trying this. This is what all the ISACs are for in all the various different industries. They're supposed to be private information sharing, open, open the kimono with only vetted people who can share information and learn from each other. Don't know if anybody's done any research on how useful that has actually been in preventing breaches. But you know, the other thing I'll say that comes to mind is uh, in the aviation world, we have something interesting. Um, it's, it's a form. It's actually a NASA form that when something happens, it's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card in some ways. The concept is if you self-report some sort of safety incident, violation uh, of regulation, something amiss happened, if you self-report it to NASA, which goes to the NTSB and, and the FAA ultimately, it can absolve you of a lot of liability in that incident. Not forever and not perfectly. But the concept is if you share the lesson learned, it reduces your legal liability in whatever happened. Mm-hmm. And the way it's set up in the aviation world is you have to do that before the FAA comes knocking on your door, right? So before they start doing some sort of enforcement action. I'm not describing this perfectly, but I'm describing it enough to say that in that particular environment, they've built an incentive for people to be honest and open and learn from to prevent accidents and other issues elsewhere in aviation. So... The only way I think this would likely work is if you could do something along those lines where if a company self-reported, they could absolve themselves of a certain level of you know, breach penalty, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Don't know. Just throwing it out there as a thought. Uh, but I don't know that this actually is the panacea everybody thinks it is to share all the information. I don't think so, and you know, I think I think there's there's two. This this is this is a two sided coin because, on the one hand, there is the desire to share with with um, you know with, with others in the industry, right? And and so that's that's the, I think what CISPA and some of the other bills have been uh, focused at doing. I mean, obviously, there's. They're much more contentious than that, and I, I don't mean to be underplaying uh, that aspect. But you know, the, the, the I guess the point is that there is a push on to enable companies, you know, let's say, who would otherwise be competitive with each other, to share information and not, uh, you know, not fear for whatever reason that they're going to be, um, you know, they're going to be subject to some kind of anti-competitive, uh, you know. A- enforcement action by the government. And so I think, you know, that that's obviously something that is underway. And, you know, I think the ISACs are intended to help with that for sure. And there's lots of other bodies, but then there's also this other uh, requirement, which basically says, you know, if you get breached, you're going to end up having to go report that to the government. And they, uh, they make a, they make a, a, a bridge to something else that that is in place right now with financial institutions. When a financial institution, either um, you know th- through IT or physical kinetic attack, has uh, you know suffers a loss, uh, 
they have to report that to the regulator. So right. It's, a, it's mandatory. So what they're basically saying is, well, maybe that should be the model that is used. Because, you know, let's face it, banks, you know, stuff happens all the time to banks. And not all, and, and presumably that is flowing into the regulators as it's required by law to happen. And that doesn't get published out. You know, I think I think the the point is that there's still some level of confidentiality that that happens there. I, you know, when, when that happens, I'm not exactly sure what the benefit is. You know, I, I you know I, I suspect that if you you know if we were to fast forward in a in a parallel universe where that was in place, uh, some some period of time, you may see. You, know, you may see laws that say, well, you know, we're seeing an awful lot of breaches that happen as a result of X, Y, and Z. And so therefore, we're going impl- to impose some kind of, you know, either incentive or penalty for companies who do X, Y, and Z wrong. So anyway, we're more to come there. Yeah, it's an interesting problem. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say, and then we can move on, is I'm not a huge fan of the patchwork of breach reporting laws in all the different states. I think that makes life really difficult. I'm not a huge fan of federal law, but in this case, it seems like it makes sense to go at a federal level to deal with this. I, I, I will say, given the proposal, that at least the one that I read, I mean, there, there's, there were many aspects of the proposal, but at least that particular part I do think would make Assuming that it superseded all the state level breach reporting requirements, I do think that would dramatically simplify the whole breach reporting problem, right? Yep. Because now, if, if you're a company that does business with residents of every one of the states, there are 47 different laws, 47 different breach laws. You got to f- notify, generally, it requires you to notify the state attorney general and, you know, other other stuff. So, it's it's a you know it's a difficult thing and it's constantly yep. changing and whatnot so you're 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 right on so moving on to our next story this one comes from security week and the title is google discloses new unpatched windows 8.1 privilege escalation flaw and pisses off microsoft to no end in the process that's right so we normally don't talk about stuff like this but i thought this was an interesting uh, discussion because this is the second time. This is not. This is not the one from December, right? This is a new one. This is the second time in a month that Google has stuck their thumb in Microsoft's eye uh, over a privilege escalation flaw, flaw in Windows 8. And I, you know, personally, I had thought the whole debate over you know, vulnerability disclosure had ended a long time ago. But I guess I was wrong. And and so this has really whipped up a bit of a frenzy because now we have Microsoft saying, oh my gosh, you know, Google, you're killing us. You're killing our customers because, you know, we, we told you we were going to patch it on the 15th and you went ahead and decided to disclose it on the 13th. And, you know, in that particular case, I think this, this one was two days uh, the last one was um, month, I think. Well, Google's side of that is, hey, we have a 90-day clock. 
Exactly. And we don't change it for anybody. Right. So we gave you 90 days to patch it. Yeah. And you took 92. Sorry. Right. Right. It's not a surprise. And, you know, I, it, it's a tenuous problem because if you if you go back a number of years and even to the even to some extent we still see it today especially in the industrial control space where um vendors try to just sit on it forever they they really don't want to address it and a lot of times and you know we we've, we've seen uh, actually i think it was last year some uh, somebody had a vulnerability in some uh i think it was a badge reader or I don't remember exactly what it was, but they they sued to have this person not present their findings at a at a uh, security conference, and you know that's kind of the the th- the thing that the vulnerability disclosure policy is intended to countermand. You know, basically, we told you that it's ninety days. Period. We're not. You know, you can fix it or not fix it. Uh, and and you know it's if your customers are at risk that's on your head not ours so yeah it's it's a tough one and if we you know abstract this off from for a moment it's a conversation I was having today uh, with someone around vulnerability management isn't just applying patches there are times when there are vulnerabilities out there that we don't have patches for so how do you deal with that as a company you've got to have a methodology. Absolutely. Now that maybe, all right, we've got some sort of compensating control we can wrap around it. Uh, maybe we've got, uh, you know, let's just say it's a, it's a, I don't know, a web vulnerability. But we've got a WAF in front of it that we can tweak to stop it. You've got to realize that there's other things to care about other than just, well, there's a patch. We've got to throw a patch out there. There's going to be times, especially with the zero days, where we're not going to have a patch. So I think this exposes, again, that discussion. In this case, and you know Google's point, and I'm I'm actually, if you had to put a gun to my head, it's a tough one, because I don't disagree with Microsoft's position that hey we should do a coordinated release when a patch is available. Google's position is we have to force people to be more responsive. And we can't allow these known vulnerabilities to just sit out there forever because if we found it, maybe somebody else found it. Exactly. And I think that's fair, right? I also think it's it's highly like there's a whole bunch of zero days out there that the bad guys know about that the good guys don't. So it's a tough one. And I don't know who... Hmm. I think if I had to choose between the two positions, if I had to choose, I'm leaning ever so slightly towards Google on this one. Yeah, I'm firmly in Google's camp, uh, you know. But it's a tough one. It's a tough situation. But it does, again, to recap, point out, we as defenders need to have methodologies to deal with vulnerabilities when we don't have patches. And we saw it over and over last year with Heartbleed, with Shellshock, with others. So if your patch management is the only way you deal with vulner, you know, vulnerabilities, that's probably not going to serve you well going forward. That, that's true. That's true. And, and by the way, I think it's also worth pointing out that um, Microsoft yesterday on Patch Tuesday, I think, if memory serves, they patched four 
local privilege escalation bugs, and I don't believe this one was one. <laughs> or no, this was one of them, but the uh, yeah the other one wasn't. I think the other one's not scheduled to be patched until February. So uh, yeah, that's. I, I agree with you, um, and you know the the other issue I see, and and I guess it's tangential to this is that. A lot of organizations, I don't think, take local provincial escalation bugs all that seriously. And I think that's that's uh, very detrimental. And so we often think about things in terms of remote code exploits and, and things like that. But from for what you just said, having some kind of mitigation plan in place, in my mind, that extends to this kind of thing as well. So... And and not in not every case you have to worry about that, right? You you need to have your own ability to determine whether or not it you know it's a it's a significant problem for you. But you know you need you do need to make that evaluation. And if it's you know if there's code out there and you feel like you're exposed, you need to have a have a way to mitigate it. Hopefully, hopefully, or at least be mindful of you know the situation. Yeah. That's right. So um, moving on to our next story. This one comes from the Cult of Mac, which is not a security site. And the title is How Sloppy Security Exposed Apple's Super Secret Product Plans. <laughs> this, this, this is just bad. <laughs> yeah. So I actually learned some things that I, 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 I didn't know about the... Um, uh, the Apple Watch, the iWatch, uh, from this article. So this, the story here is that a company called Quanta Computer, which is based out of Taiwan, who is an OEM manufacturer for a whole bunch of different uh, computer makers, right, including Apple. Well, apparently their database, they have a database that is somehow accessible from the internet, and uh, they publish. I uh, this part's not exactly clear to me, right? But uh, there were documents, I presume PowerPoints, circulating around the internet, which had login credentials to get into their database. And worse than that, their customers were set up with accounts, and apparently all the accounts had similar or the same default password and i guess nobody you know who changes the password right that's crazy crazy talk crazy talk so um so yeah people apparently have been walking out with uh plans for apple products and and you know that's really if you're a company like apple i mean that's your that's your secret sauce is your your product roadmap and um, one of the, as I was mentioning, one of the things I didn't know is the day before uh, Tim Cook did his big dog and pony show introducing the iWatch, somebody posted on Reddit diagrams and information about the iWatch that they had stolen from the site. Wow. So, yeah. Oi. And, um, this kind of comes back to something we've been talking a lot about, which is vendor, you know, vendor management, and your, you know, you are in many ways beholden to the security of your vendor. And this is a little bit different take on some of the you know, some of the recent discussions we've had because 
it wasn't that Quanta was a vector into Apple's network. It was that Apple had transferred intellectual property to Quanta, who was storing it on their own systems. And, you know, it was just apparently wide open to the Internet. So, uh, so you know, that, I think, put that into your into your uh, vendor management pipe and smoke it, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the other, one of the other things, and I, I've talked about this long ago, and I want to bring it up again. Search Google for your confidential information. If you, yeah. if you, you know, if you have a, if you tag your documents with some kind of, uh, you know, your name and confidential or something like that, you know, put that in the Google, set the file type to PowerPoint or, or Word doc, and go see what you find out there, because I bet you're going to be a little surprised. You know, this is also a great point, uh, or a great time to bury some sort of, there's a term for it, I don't know what we decided to call this, but some sort of unique identifier in, in your proprietary information. You know, whether it's a fake entry into a database, whether it's something that is unique, easily searchable, use it to trigger DLP, use it to trigger... Uh, you know, anything looking for unstructured data that shouldn't be where it shouldn't be. This is another great example of it uh, where you can actually bury some sort of fake honey data out in your stuff and then go look for it and see where it's at and where it shouldn't be. Yeah, to basically tag it with some unique identifier that lets you go back and look yeah. for it. But that looks like legitimate data, so it wouldn't necessarily be stripped. True. Good point. Yeah. Good point. So, so yeah, that that's, uh, I think, the long and the short of it. To- total... Uh, unadulterated fail on the part <laughs> well, of the vendor. Well, it's a good example of if you are handing off proprietary secret data to a third party, you might want to spend some of your resources going and checking out that third party. Yeah, especially if you're Apple, and especially if, if your business hinges so much on... on I think thing. Apple probably could have devoted a, uh, an FTE to, uh, Maybe. to this problem, I think. Maybe. Maybe. Although I mean, yeah. it's tough with all the suppliers they've got to work with, it's tough. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But at the same time, I, I you know, I've long, and, and now I'm, you know, straying way off the path, right? But I've long wondered if Apple is not the beneficiary of some of their leaks. You know that they, they. I really think they. They have become a master at building buzz. I'm not saying that this was part of that, but I'm not saying that it didn't help them either. Uh, perhaps unintentionally at times. Perhaps intentionally. Uh, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, I, how I many don't... times have we? Find, you know, how many times have iPhones been left at bars? Right. <laughs> but you know, at the same time. I really do think Apple legitimately, from everyone I've talked to who works at Apple, is legitimately incredibly, incredibly concerned with their security of their intellectual property. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. Just. They are absolutely notorious in the industry for that. So I, I do think some of these are just Charlie Foxtrots that because they are so epically known for their security when they do screw up it is front page news yeah for for sure and and uh, you know if you are going to invest that much in security you really need to be looking at this too so anyhow uh moving on to our last story which comes from network world 
And uh, this is a really interesting, kind of subtle story that I don't think has gotten a ton of news. So this, the, the headline here is, Hackers dump over 30,000 confidential client emails after bank refuses to pay ransom. So there's a Swiss bank named BCGE, and it stands for something, and I'm not even going to try to to say it. Uh, apparently was being blackmailed or ransomed by a, um, a, a hacker group. And I'm trying to find the name of the hacker group. Uh, Rex Mundi is the name of the hacker group. I'm, I suppose that means something to someone. Um, they uh, so so they leaked. I think they leaked some uh, a, a small number of emails, if memory serves. Uh, and they had uh, right around thirty-one or thirty thousand emails, uh, and they had ransomed, or they had demanded a ransom out of BCGE for ten thousand euros, which is not a not a ton of money. And you know they they kind of go on to say that this Rex Mundy has a has a reputation of quantity, not quality. So to speak, you know their their uh, their reputation is that you know, they would rather go. They would rather ransom ten different companies ten thousand bucks each than one company a hundred thousand bucks because they will get companies to pay ten thousand bucks. They it's it's uh, apparently there's a pain threshold beyond which people don't want to pay. But yeah, we've talked about this like with crypto uh, crypto locker and crypto wall, right? They they find that sweet spot. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so the bank here kind of thumbed their nose at Rex Mundy, and Rex Mundy, true to form, did in fact drop the uh, the emails, and you know they, I think they they posted some kind of cute email saying, you know, I we hope that uh, we hope that you're uh, referring to the cut the bank's customers. You know, we we hope that your tax records are in order, or you n- enjoy your tax audit, or whatever. But not realizing that they're already passing that information to global governments. Anyhow, that the days of Swiss bank secrecy is well. Let's see, that's uh, thirteen years past now. So <laughs> for, fourteen years past. Uh, but but in any event. Um, the story here to me is twofold. Number one, the bank is completely downplaying the importance of these emails. You know, basically saying, you know, it's a non-issue. Yeah, these emails were put out there. It's old stuff. Nothing, nothing personal. And I, I find that offensive. You know, on 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 the one hand, the other is, how do they steal these? And there's not a lot of um, not a lot of detail, except there are a number of references that apparently some number of servers run by BCGE were hacked, and this apparently where the data was stolen from. So, um, and there again, there's no reference to that. Uh, they the bank says that they took no no corrective action. They didn't find anything that they needed to do differently. And I, I just find the whole response really odd. And I don't know if yeah. it's a cultural thing with the Swiss or or, or what, but it's um, it's a very odd situation to me. It is. I I applaud them for not paying the ransom. 
Yeah, I agree. You know, and and I've read a couple of articles where they kind of said, "Look, we're we're not going to give into this. We're going to be completely open and transparent, and we're going to you know just deal with what comes because we're not going to feed into this methodology of making business by the cyber criminals." So I somewhat agree with that, at least. But yeah, there's a lot of other oddness here, and maybe this has something to do with perhaps regulations in in Switzerland too. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I. I just I just find the the way they're downplaying the data that was stolen and the servers that were hacked is it's it just is odd to me. Um and apparently this this group has also been known to be attacking a bunch of other companies including Tabasco, Z staffing, uh Exeris, um let's see the temporary staffing agency Extra Interim and uh, and they also tried to blackmail Domino's. So I think we actually talked about Domino's <laughs> uh, couple, several months ago. When uh, I think they they had stole yeah six hundred fifty thousand records. They stole a bunch of records and they were blackmailing Domino's. That seems a lot more work than just you know doing DDoS extortion, which apparently seems a lot easier and or, probably just as likely to make them money. Or Crypto Locker. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh, well. not, not that I'm trying to tell them what to do here. Not giving them ideas. It's just a lot of work. It's just <laughs> a lot of work. But, uh, yeah, so so uh, maybe there'll be more to come. I just The reason I brought this one up, I found their response to be very odd, and I also found the media's lack of uh, really pressing into that interesting. You know, we, we, you know, we, we see... With Sony or Target or Home Depot, you know, pitchforks and torches being raised. And, you know, here's this yawner. Oh, Swiss Bank gets hacked and doesn't pay the ransom. You know, it, there's, there's, anyway, I just, I just find the whole thing really odd. I'm, I'm uh, I guess I'm throwing rocks at the media. <laughs> but not all the media. We like a few of them. That's true. That's true. Like Brian Krebs, we're big fans. Absolutely, we got to get this on his uh, on his radar. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that is uh, episode one hundred and one. It's a little a little abbreviated because we're both tired, and um, you know, I think uh, next next time we'll get back on to our normal track. Yeah, we might move our recording day to a, a better day. I think. Indeed. Indeed. But uh, thanks for sticking with us through through my little job transition transition here. And once I get used to getting up early and driving to work every day, I'll be fine. Yep, your days of slacking are over. It's good working with proper villains again, though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> All right. Well, I again, I appreciate everyone listening. And uh, if you have any thoughts or opinions or comments, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find the links to the stories we talk about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can find the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can find Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week. Take care. See you. See you, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.